Good morning. Good morning. Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. And uh, Ken asked to pray for Joan this morning. She's not doing well, and he may have to take her into the hospital. So let's do that as we begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study uh, the history of of the church, both uh, the church of Jesus Christ that he was happy to put his name on and and even other churches who tried to represent you but didn't follow your word in doing so. We pray that you'd help us to be able to learn both from the positive and the negative examples and that we would be good stewards of the uh, manifold grace that you have given to us. Help us to recognize that all of the accomplishments that we make can only be attributed to your grace. And so we cannot take the, the credit for it in any way, but we certainly must work and do our part as as you have required of us and at the same time praise you for the progress that we make. We thank you for each who is here today and we pray that you would be honored in our services today. Thank you for the time that we can have a fellowship and testimony of praise and um, an opportunity to worship you in that way. We do pray for our brother Ken and um, situation there this morning. Give him wisdom and grace and Joan as well. And, and we just pray that you would uh, just uh, show yourself strong in that situation and uh, help us now as we look into these truths from history. And we, we will uh, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you go to Europe, I'm told that there are no shortage of church buildings. From the small community churches to the spectacular cathedrals, um, this was brought about mainly because of the medieval churches that arose in Europe during that time. And um, in these churches, you'll find amazing architecture and, and beautiful artwork and incredible stained glass. And what that tells us is the amount of wealth that there was in the churches at that time, but it also tells us how these church churches had had um, given in to the underlying trappings of the world's influence there in Europe. And um, they felt that if Christ was king, then then he ought to be uh, have a place of authority and royalty. And if that was the case, then they needed to have nice church buildings. Um, from AD 950 to 1500, the period which we'll look at today, there were fierce conflicts between the emperor and the pope. And that will be the main focus of our study this morning. Uh, what that led to was what are known as the Crusades, where uh, people in the name of Christ are trying to win, people, win others over to, um, to Christendom, and they do it through battle. So, we begin there with the roots of conflict, the the seeds of renewal. Charlemagne was uh, in power there in the 9th and 10th centuries, and and as a result, there came a new wave of opposition to him. Uh, There there were Muslims coming from the south, and his empire became slowly eroded until it uh, it, it was very weak. And during these two centuries, the Christian faith... Uh, experienced great geographic expansion because of the, the trouble that was happening in the Roman Empire. The, the, the people 
who were being persecuted were being pushed out into other areas. And so, in a short time, almost all of Scandinavia, which would be Denmark, Norway, and most of Sweden, had come under the Christian name. And uh, I don't know how, uh, how closely they would stick to the Bible, but it, at the very least, they understood uh, some of the, the basic principles of the Scripture. It also made its way into Iceland, Greenland, Russia, and Hungary, and even some areas of Mesopotamia, which had previously been uh, controlled by Muslim, the Muslim faith. But even though there was expansion going on at the time, uh, geographically, all was not well in the church. We have what is known as the investiture, investiture controversy. This became one of the most fiercely contested episodes in church history. It is what led to the Reformation, which is what we'll look at next week, the Reformation of 1500. And at, its, at the center of it was the question, who is in control? Is it the church or the state? Is it the, is it the pope or is it the emperor? Who, who, had, who, was, who had the control and what were their responsibilities? If one had control over the other, if they had equal control, then, then who had what responsibilities? And so, um, so during this time, um, this investiture was where a king would grant or invest a property. Let's see that word invest in there. He'd invest a property to a priest as a, as a way of granting uh, the church leadership uh, religiously. So what that means is, for example, it would be like the mayor of Royal Oak uh, giving this land here that the church property sits on to me. And so you can imagine that that would uh, receive uh, great uh, favor from the people who were in that sort of position, the priests and the bishops of these churches. But it also led to a great deal of corruption because over time what would happen is that these these church leaders would desire more and more power and the way you get power is you get more land and so they would uh, try to get the king to to pass over these different pieces of land to them by taking over these churches and so uh, that really led to this investiture controversy led to um, this huge collision between the papacy and the emperor. And that really, uh, that, that really started to take off in the 10th century. At that time, the, empire, the, empire, the, the emperor of the, the Roman Empire thought that they had the power to control the popes, that they had the power to appoint the popes, and uh, that the church leaders didn't have the power to appoint them. So for, for decades... You remember, the Pope was supposed to be one man over all of the Roman church. And there weren't supposed to be competing popes. But what happened over time was because the king thought that he could appoint the Pope and the church leaders thought that they could appoint the Pope, there were actually more than one Pope. At, there, there were more than uh, one Pope at that time. There was more than one Pope at that time. That didn't sound right for some reason. Uh, there were as many as three uh, at one time, but there were often two during this ninth and 10th century. In 985, the controversy reached a boiling point when Boniface VII died suddenly. Um, and as a result, the, uh, the, the, uh, the empire didn't really have any favor for this pope, and so they dragged him through the street, his dead body, through the street naked, 
and, and left it out in the open for people to walk by and see. Well, in the middle of this turmoil, Henry III became emperor and determined to put a stop to this tug of war in Rome. And so in 1049, he convened a council in Germany and subsequently forced the resignation of three rival popes. And then he appointed his own pope in their place. That was Leo IX. Leo was already well-schooled in, um, in, in thought and, and wanted to reform the papacy, and he did not want the state to have the power over the pope. So when Henry the, who did I say? Henry III appointed him as pope, he did not accept the appointment because he knew that that would mean that he was conceding to, to, to the leader of Rome there. So instead, what he did was he, he went all the way to... Um, from uh, Germany to Rome, dressed as it's, as it's recorded in beggar's clothes, and he refused to take office until he was elected by the clergy in Rome. So Leo really set the ground for this even greater, uh, this even greater uh, turning point that we're going to see. And he, he disregarded the leadership of the state over the church. Well, upon Henry's death, the emperor in 1059, a new pope named Nicholas II issued a papal decree. And he declared that the emperor could not appoint a pope. Rather, the pope had to be appointed by cardinals. Uh, cardinals are just a select group of bishops designated by the pope. So, so basically they're denying all state rule over them, that they're their own separate entity. Um, now, Nicholas was not the mastermind behind this. He really was much like a pawn. The person who was behind this was a man by the name of Hildebrand. Hildebrand was an influential figure in Rome, um, and he wanted to reform the papacy as well. In 1073, upon the death of the reigning pope, Hildebrand was literally carried from his home to the center of Rome where the cardinals quickly ran a formal election and named him Pope. He later took the name Gregory VII. He named himself that because he wanted to be named after his hero, Gregory the Great, in the late 6th century. We talked about him last week. Over his tenure as Pope, Gregory VII would make papal power even more widely felt than, than uh, his predecessor. Gregory's... Uh, conception of the papal power was all-encompassing, that it would cover all of, of, uh, of the world, that it would have control over all things. And he believed that the world was organized around two great powers. So he didn't deny that emperors had rule and leadership. He simply denied that they had leadership over him and over the church. And so he saw these two great powers in the world as the emperor and the pope. And he believed that they were supposed to cooperate together to govern the world. And when there was conflict, guess who he thought should have the final say? Himself, right? Gregory VII. He thought he had the final say, that, that his rule would have precedence over the state. Well, uh, one of the things that he did, one of the assertions that he made was that the Pope alone may use the title universal. That is... Only the Pope has the authority to instate or overthrow bishops, 
No one may judge him or reverse any of his decisions. Does that sound familiar? That the Roman church has never erred, never made a mistake, nor will it make a mistake to all of eternity. Okay, these are some claims that he's making. And, it, and he also asserted that the popes have the authority to overthrow emperors if they choose. Okay, so he's making some pretty bold... I would say that, that Gregory VII's reign is the height of the papacy, Okay, if you want to look at it in those terms. Um, that, that it was the, the highest amount of rule that they had ever had. And you'll see this here in this uh, as we continue. Um, in 1075, after Gregory made these rules, he tried to uh, test his power, see if what he had said was, in fact, true. And uh, so he appointed a German to become Archbishop of Milan. Well, Gregory, uh, I'm sorry, the emperor was the one that was testing it. So this is, uh, this is the emperor at the time is testing the Pope's power. So the Pope puts this big rule out, out there that, that we have the ultimate power and the emperor comes along and says, well, we'll see who has the ultimate power. I'm going to appoint my own Pope. Remember? Who was supposed to appoint the Pope according to the, the church? It was the cardinals, right? So the emperor comes along and says, I'm going to do it. And so he makes... He makes this uh, this uh, this German an Archbishop of Milan. Well, uh, Gregory was furious, and um, and so he um, he res- he responded by uh, sending several people uh, who he had appointed bishop. Well, Henry the Emperor responded by denouncing the Pope. He said. Your name is not Gregory the Seventh. Your name is Hildebrand. That was his name, but he didn't want to be called that anymore. And you're not a pope, but you're a false monk. And um, and here's how Henry ended his letter to the pope for really not just him to read, but for all. It said, I, Henry, king by grace of God and all my bishops say to you, come down, come down, and be condemned throughout the ages. Except for he didn't say condemned. To Gregory... This was all an all-out attack on the church of Christ itself. So Gregory responded with the most powerful weapon that he had. And what do you think that weapon was? It was to excommunicate the emperor. Remember what the last assertion that Gregory VII said that he could do? If he wanted to, he could overthrow the emperor. He, he could get rid of him, remove him from power. So he, he saved that one for this occasion. And he responded by saying, it was not for kings to judge popes, but for popes to judge kings. And this was the most drastic step that the pope had ever taken, trying to dethrone the mightiest uh, monarch in Western society. Well, um, Henry IV, uh, this is Henry IV by now, um, not Henry III, I think I said that earlier, but... um, he was not only feeling defeated, but he was actually feeling terrified because he realized that people could follow the Pope over him and actually believe that he was no longer the emperor. And like many emperors, their desire is for power. And so he hurried in, in search of a Pope and found him in, in search of the Pope and found himself 
inside the, the fortress of Canosa. And the story goes that in 1076, in the dead of winter, imagine this, Henry IV, the emperor of, uh, of Rome, stood barefoot outside the wall begging for forgiveness from the Pope. And um, this was not... Uh, this was not because he was a humble man and uh, anything like that. He remember he wanted to maintain his power. It was probably most the most dramatic scene in all of medieval church history. Uh, well, Gregory received Henry back into communion and restored him to his throne. He realized that he had to be careful with that because he could uh, soon change the tables on him, turn the tables on him. But but at this point in history, the Pope stood with such superiority. That, um, that, that he would be able to have power even over the emperor of Rome. Well, the great pope, Gregory VII, died in exile in 1085. He was a defeated man. And this moment would be, and probably still is, a great moment of pride for popes for centuries to come. Well, after the death of this pope, several others followed his, in his position and the greatest of these was probably Innocent III. He was there in 1198 to 1216. And he declared that, and perhaps you've heard this phrase before, the successor of Peter is the vicar of Christ. Okay, in other words, if we are handed down this apostolic tradition through the succession of popes, then we are the vicar, the, the mediator of Christ. Okay, so you want to, you want to have Christ's grace in your life? You want to experience the grace that comes through the church? Then you need to come to the Pope. Is what they were saying. Innocent III was saying, and, and obviously uh, that is still held to this day. Um, Innocent conceded that the kings were given certain functions, but ultimately kings derived their authority from the popes. And here's how he explained it: as the moon only reflects the light of the sun. So, royal power or kings derive their dignity and splendor from the power of the Pope. So, we're like the sun. We have all the brilliance, you know, the power. And you, as the king, you simply reflect our power. So, that would lead to what we're going to look at next, and that is the Crusades. But before we, we get there, uh, are there any questions or comments on this struggle between the kings and, and the popes? Jared. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, there wasn't a whole lot of of that going on. Um, there. Uh, that's why it's called often the Dark Ages. They were steeped in intellectualism, and and we'll see later when we get to Thomas Aquinas and that. That they're 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 still looking for the struggle. That's why the church really needed a reformation. I mean, it was hanging by a thread through the uh, really through the Catholic Church. Okay, you didn't have like Baptist churches at that time or people who who were probably doing church the right way at all. You would have people who were concerned about what God would say, but they would couple that with uh, a desire for their own power, and so. I think that's a great question because um right
Well, right, because the church actually should be uh, bearing their name, and that's why we have to take these things with a grain of salt. When I say Christendom, okay, that's the most broadest. That's 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 the broadest term that that you can say about people who follow Christ. But that doesn't mean that they follow Christ like we follow Christ. Okay, they don't they don't have the same view of the authority of scriptures that we have. Um, so I think your your point is valid, um, but um, you're right. There there are false churches out there, and and um, and um, and ultimately, I think there was a lot of confusion during these dark dark ages spiritually, and it wasn't until 1500. Uh, I mean, we're covering we're covering 550 years today and and last two weeks we covered 650 years so we covered 1200 years of darkness before you get to okay so from 300 to 1500 there's not a whole lot of uh, of silver lining there but god was still there people were still uh i believe there's still christians i mean there's still people coming to christ but they were very confused and the other thing is you got to remember that the catholic church at that time was much different than it is today I mean, they have already been established. At that time, there were still people holding out um, and and trying to make sure that they were um, founded in the scriptures. Um, but now they've they all that history has passed. They've already made their statements. They they I mean, these sorts of things that are starting to develop here that we've seen, like the successor of Peter as the vicar of Christ, that, that sort of thing. You know, up until that point, they're probably going to church, seeing the Bible as authority. Over time, as more power started to get in the way, then uh, it, it got pretty ugly. So, yeah, that, um, I actually had the same thought when I was going through. We had three church history classes. We had early church history, and then medieval church history, which is what we're looking at the last three weeks. And then... Um, I think modern church history, and the second one was just—I mean, it's it's popes, it's churches, it's fighting, it's—and and you you wonder how there could be any hope in all this, and yet, really, it's much like a—it's might much like a dissonant sound in an orchestral piece, okay, where the 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 notes collide and it sounds very unappealing to the ear until it hits the crescendo and it resolves, which I think happens, okay, if we're looking at it in terms of church history, it resolves in the Reformation. And there we get to see God's God working in an incredible way, and not just in Luther, not just through one man, but, but through Zwingli, Calvin, Huss, I mean, all sorts of reformers, Wycliffe, you know, during that time in different areas of the world, primarily in Europe, but, but in different areas of the, the Christian world, and causing the streams of history to come to a point where they would see that we need to get back to the authority of the Scriptures. We need to see that justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, not through the church, not through the Pope. And we can't see that. We can't see that crescendo, that resolve, unless we see the, the, um, the darkness, I guess, of these 1,200 years. Uh, let me. I'll get to you in a second. Vicky had hers first. Go ahead. Um, 
In the tenth and third, yep. Yep. Go ahead. Trish? Right. That's an excellent point. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, we, we often interpret history in light of, you know, our modern technologies, but that's an excellent point because at that time, how would you find out about the Word of God? I mean, you, unless you were wealthy, you didn't have a copy of the Scriptures for not even one portion of the Scriptures for yourself. The only way that you could make the Scriptures authorities is if you were showing up to churches. And so that's the danger when, when these leaders actually start to become more and more corrupted. And without someone to be able to do what happened in Acts chapter 17 with the Bereans searching the Scriptures to d- daily, see if it was in fact true, you, you couldn't do that without the printing press which came about in the 1500s. Uh, really, Wycliffe had that first uh, printed Bible. Um, and before that, you had to be either in some sort of uh, wealthy family or you had to be a monk yourself in order to have a copy. So that's an excellent point because you'd have to go to a church building to hear the, church, the Scriptures read. So that, that definitely contributed to a lot of the, the confusion um, and that's why it's most important not to follow a person, okay? And I say that about myself as well, that you you should never follow me to follow me because I am I am fallible. I almost said infallible. Um, I am fallible, but the scriptures are not, okay? And and if I'm not pointing you to Christ, then then I need to know about it. And um, and uh, if if I am, then you should follow Christ. Uh, but but at the same time, Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. All right, good. Good discussion. Thank you for for those thoughts and questions. Any other? All right. Well, let's look at the Crusades, and we'll have to uh, look at these quickly. But I think you uh, are familiar with with the Crusades. Let me just talk to you uh, quickly about what their purpose was. During this time, during the the 11th century here, the early 11th century. Um, what was happening is that the the Muslims were starting to take over Jerusalem. They were starting to invade it. In fact, they did take over Jerusalem for a period of time. And so the primary purpose of the crusade was to recapture what the Muslims had taken, the holy places of Jerusalem. And um, so that's that's really why it began. But there are other purposes as well. Secondarily, the popes also hoped to repair the division that they had between the Eastern and Western churches. Remember, 1054 was that great schism between the Eastern and Western Orthodox churches. And what better way to to repair division than to have a common enemy, right? And uh, and so they did. They had the common enemy in these these uh, people, these Muslim radicals. The third purpose was um, was to to end the fighting between Christians, okay? So not only between the East and the West, but also between uh, the different Christians throughout the the, the region. And um, so they uh, they they wanted to make sure they recaptured this area, but also be able to kind of form an alliance with 
with other people who believed similarly to them. The first crusade began in 1096 under Pope Urban II. Um, The Turks had been embraced, had embraced Islam and, and were threatening Constantinople. So, Pope Urban helped out this Byzantine emperor who needed some help at that time, and he preached a sermon in which he called the people of Western Europe to, to, to join in this battle against the Muslims. And here's how his sermon ended. Undertake this journey for the remission of your sins with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. You understand what he's saying there? Take on this journey, that is, get into this battle, this crusade, for the remission of sins. He's saying all your sins can be forgiven and you can be guaranteed entrance into heaven if you join in this crusade. If you kill people who do not believe as we do. Now that actually sounds familiar today, but it actually sounds familiar from the the enemy at this point. Uh, that that, That Muslims actually uh, believe this. I mean, could you imagine if we had Christians who did the same thing? That's exactly what's going on here in the early 11th century. And uh, the people responded with uh, great fire and determination. They, they ended the sermon by, instead of amen, they said, God wills it. And as a result, 25,000 soldiers set out for Constantinople to try to recover this um, this holy place that they saw as a holy place. Now, one of their problems um, was that they, they saw that the kingdom of God was supposed to be established on earth. They thought that they were the ones that were responsible to establish the kingdom of God on earth. When if you understand what we've been talking about in Revelation, the kingdom of God is actually established by whom? Is it by His people, ultimately? I mean, it's by Christ. The King of the kingdom will come after His judgment and establish His rule as King. And um, and so that was one of their problems in their thinking that they didn't understand God's kingdom as it was revealed in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> as a result of their victory there in uh, in Constantinople, uh, one of the one of the leaders. Uh, of the Muslim group, the Islamic world, was was a man by the name of Saladin. Saladin was a fierce warrior and he came to be known as a legendary fig- figure in the Islamic world. In fact, he's still talked about today. And um, one of the things that he proclaimed was a jihad or a holy war against the Christians. And as a result, his forces soon recaptured Jerusalem which had recently been taken by these crusaders. Um, well, in 1202, Innocent III, the, one of the most powerful popes of all time, um, led a crusade back to the Holy Land to try to retake it again. And in order to avoid hardship, they went on ships instead of on land. And... Um, and they, they were headed across the Mediterranean from, from Rome to Israel, um, but they saw an opportunity to land in Constantinople and attack that instead because there was much wealth there. And so you can see that these crusaders did not always have the best of intentions. They ended up staying there for a long period of time and, um, and they received much wealth. And 
the, the brutality of these wars is just despicable. Um, they, they would spend the next three days in Constantinople in, in pillaging, sacking the, the entire city. And um, they, would, uh, they, they would have to... Uh, they, they would leave bodies beheaded out in the streets and, and you'd pretty much have to walk over bodies to get to, to places. I mean, it was really... Uh, brutal. I mean, I think war often is, but but this was uh, supposed to be in the name of Christ. Well, how should we respond to these crusades? I mean, how should we look at these? Because perhaps you've seen these um, not idolize is not the word, but, but perhaps you've seen people show favor to those who who look at these uh, crusades as if it was a good thing. First of all, you have to remember that, that both sides were to blame for these crusades, both the people who called themselves Christians and the Muslims. Um, the Muslims really were, if you want to do a brother-sister type of illustration, they started it. Okay? Um, and, and, but, but still, they're both to blame. And um, so we, we have to recognize that. Secondly, because human nature is sinful, we should not be surprised at the evil that sometimes comes into our faith. That is, that there is never at any point in history a perfect church. Okay? There's never a time in history when, when, uh, when, when we can just exalt the people of God as, 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 um, almost as in an idolatrous way. We have to recognize that that for us in our history, our history is not based on what our fathers did. Okay, so these people who called themselves Christians these 1,200 years, our Christianity is not based on that. It's based on on Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so we don't have to try to defend what they did. That's what often happens when we talk about the Crusades. We say, well, they were Christians. They were probably the best Christians that there were at that time, so we need to defend them somehow. And that's often what happens, but that's actually very dangerous because our, our, um, our identity in Christ is not based on our relationship to them. Now, in many ways, we stand on their shoulders. I, I say that often. Um, Pastor Dorn used to say that all the time, that we, we, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. In many ways, they fought battles that we don't even know. Uh, oftentimes, we don't even understand the implications of, of what those battles meant. And when I say battles, I'm talking about not physical battles, but spiritual um, standing up for truth and so on. But, but ultimately, our identity, is, our identity is not based on on what they did, but it's based on Christ. And so we should be thankful in one sense that that God used the, that sort of history to lead us to this place, lead to what we're going to talk about here in just a second, that is the Reformation. Third, we should see that the Crusades in, com, in, in, in context with regard to the many problems that were plaguing the church. Okay, Remember, the Crusades were born out of a desire for Yes, desire for land, but it was also desire for power. They wanted to unite all people who who, who followed the name of Christ, and and in doing so, it led to great confusion. And of course, with these corrupt leaders, led to great corruption, and um, 
And uh, so ultimately, we have to recognize that advancing the work of Christ does not happen through force. Okay, We can't force anyone to accept Christ. We saw that in, in the 300s, right? When, when Constantine was ruler and he said, everybody has to, uh, to stop persecuting the church. You, and, and what happened to the church at that time? Did it, did it expand greatly? Did lots of people come to Christ? Possibly. But actually, more people seem to come to Christ during times of persecution than, than in times of, of favor. So ultimately, God's, God's, um, God's mission, God, God's work here on this earth is accomplished through His purposes and not through necessarily through our own strenuous efforts by forcing people to do things. Real change comes by God's grace. All right, so those are the Crusades. Let me quickly go through these uh, monks and popes. There's mainly three groups of monks that I want to touch on, and then we'll move on to what led to the Reformation, which is going to be the focus of our study next time. Three most important orders of monks were the Cluniacs, the Cistercians, and the Franciscans. The Cluniacs emphasized separation from the world, like many of the monks did, and independence, and they they started to spread and grow at a rapid pace. And as a result, they became very wealthy. People would come to them and, and desire their wisdom and so on. Well, as often is the case, wealth leads to corruption for them. That's not always the case, but, but often it is. And it led to corruption. And so as a result, in 1098, the Cisterians were founded and, and their main goal was to be anti-Cluniacs. That is, they, they wanted to avoid all of the wealth and the corruption that had come into their order. And so they emphasized simplicity, poverty, and manual labor instead of scholarship and private prayer over corporate. So they desired to have private prayer, to, to be poor. They, they didn't want to be corrupted by those things. And uh, some of the writings that they have done still remain to this day. In fact, one of our hymns that we sing comes from this uh, this order of monks, O sacred head now wounded. So, so again, their desire, as we talked about before, their desire is to, to understand the Scriptures and to be independent, separated from the world. We understand that they went a little too far there and, and often uh, led to corruption. They can't ultimately pull yourself away from the world and avoid corruption because the corruption follows you since it's in your heart. Um, the most well-known Cisterian monk was a man by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, he served as a sort of spiritual director for much of Europe. Um, and his influence led even beyond his death. John Calvin in the 1500s held him in very high regard. So, so Bernard of Clairvaux, I think he was actually the one who wrote, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. third group is called the Franciscans. And they wanted to renounce all worldly possessions, and um, and um, so those are the the main three groups. I I don't think I need to get any more detail on them, but this really led to there are three main things that led to the Reformation. First is the the uh, revival of the monasteries. Okay, remember that's where Luther was when he discovered. That justification comes by faith alone through through Christ alone. Romans chapter one verse seventeen that the righteous man shall live by what 
by faith, right? And he was he was appalled that he had because he was actually preaching through the book of Romans. He was preaching through the the Psalms and uh, and I think Isaiah, uh, some really excellent studies for someone who was in his who had his background. And when he came across that verse, he recognized that that selling indulgences, that is selling these these tickets for people that they can have grace if they just pay money, what was was preposterous uh, according to what the scriptures taught. And um, so first was the the revival of the monasteries, the the the, the revival of the monks. The, the second is the moral decline of the papacy. See, one of the things that led to the Reformation was that these popes that we've been talking about for the last 1,200 years are starting to decline in power. And um, and then thirdly, there was an evolving political atmosphere in Europe. And th- these three things would contribute to, to the Reformation. We'll talk about how that works next week. Um, one of the things that was, uh, that was highlighted during this time just leading up to 1500 and the 1400s really, was something that we call scholasticism, which is the relationship between faith and reason. What is the relationship between faith and reason? Is it that faith and reason are on the same level? Does faith inform reason? In other words, because I believe in God, that informs the way I think? Or is it the other way around? Because I think, I can I, I can actually reason into into what I believe. And uh, this led to lots of uh, uh, debates and, and so on. One of, the mans, one, of the mans, one of the men involved in this was a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Um, he, was, uh, he, he desired to be a part of a monastery, Dominican one. His family despised the fact that he would do this, and so they tried to tempt him. They even kidnapped him and, and uh, tried to offer him a position of power in, in political realm, but he denied it, went on to the monastery and uh, was involved in, in much philosophy and, and, and thinking. Um, and he came up with this idea of what's called the first cause, that the reason that we can believe in God is because um, we, can, we can think that He exists, so that we, we think Him into existence almost. And so he, he believed that you could prove that God exists. Um, and uh, I don't have time to get into all that philosophical uh, stuff right now, but it is, it is, uh, it's not a very good legacy that Thomas Aquinas left. In fact, one of the things that he developed was something called natural law, which holds that moral laws instituted by God can be known by human reason, listen to this, without special revelation. Okay? So, anything that you want to know in life can be found out apart from what God has revealed in Scripture. Over time, he, he exalted human reason over, over the Scriptures, over faith, and um, he adopted the Roman Catholic tradition and later on believed that justification comes through cooperation. Okay, in other words, your salvation comes by cooperating with God. That is, that God helps those who help themselves. Okay, that may be true once you're a believer. I don't necessarily like to use that phrase, but, but that's definitely not true when it comes to your salvation. God doesn't help you when you help yourself to get saved. You have no 
You, you have no dog in the fight, okay, when it comes to salvation. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so what he says here is that we actually cooperate with God. And he later went on to say that we do we we come to know God um, apart from grace, apart from grace, and that we can ultimately love God perfectly. So what that led to was humanism, and um, this humanism was really at the at the center of what the Reformation was going to deny. So not only did these crusades give power. Uh, um, to give more less power to the papacy, but it also revealed an inadequacy to try to set up the kingdom of God on earth and try to put too much in the hands of, of human. And so this means that the church in crisis needed to recover. Uh, they needed to recover what was most important, God's sovereignty and God's grace. You know what the world needed at this time? It needed a reformation. And that's exactly what's going to happen uh, beginning in the fifth, early 1500s. All right. Any questions or comments? All right. Appreciate you, uh, um, you sitting through this and thinking through these things. My, uh, I, I'm glad I didn't tell you this before, but my uh, my history church history professor, when we started going through this section of church history, said, "I have a really hard time." Uh, thinking through, the, or I have a really hard time having any interest in this period of history. And I thought, if you have a hard time, I had a really hard time with church history altogether. And if you have a hard time with this dark ages, then I have, I, I'm going to, I'm, but he actually began our class by saying that. So I'm thinking, how am I going to, to, to keep interest? But I appreciate your, uh, your uh, attention and your, your comments, contributions. Jonathan. I, I think it's actually um, quite helpful because we get to look into the nature of our people's personalities and it reaffirms for us the fact that, you know, sin nature is our basic personality and that's what governs what we do. And you see how people over and over again, they don't seek God, they seek their own ways. And there's all these different ways throughout history of people trying to get to God. Right, God of their making. Yeah, it's true. We get to. That's why. And when I prayed, I I said, you know, I pray that we can learn from these negative examples as well. Um, one of the dangers in looking at the broad stroke of Christianity now, uh, even in our circles, our our types of churches, that is to think that it would never get that way again. But we're only a few generations from from our society, American society, and and the world out at large, denying God. I mean, if if we don't pass on what we've learned from the scriptures and be able to hold firm to it ourselves, then then we're not too far away from our grandchildren or great grandchildren denying it completely. Vicky. Yeah. Yeah, the manifold grace of God. Paul often talked about the the gift that he had of being able to 
explain the mystery of Christ. I mean, think about it. You're taking truths that come from heaven and being able to explain them to other people, to understand them for yourselves and explain them to other people. God has entrusted you with that. And so, in terms of church history, you are, you are blessed more than many to be able to have what you have in front of you, the Scriptures, and to be, have, to be able to have a church like you do. So, that's, that's an excellent point. Thank you for saying that. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for how you have led through history. We certainly would like to see how um, there were all these pockets of, of uh, obedience and, and uh, perfect following, but we recognize that that never is the case. Even in our own lives, we, uh, we hold back in certain areas. We're not perfect in every area see that in the lives of Old Testament saints even, where they would, um, they would follow you, uh, but then there would be areas where they would hold back. Um, we certainly don't um, want to, to follow you in that way. We want to give all that we have to you, and so we pray that you would search our hearts, know our minds, that you would reveal to us where there are wicked ways in us, and then lead us into the way of everlasting. We thank you for these truths, these gifts, these things that, which you have entrusted to us. Help us now to guard them, keep them, uh, establish uh, your work here, and, and continue to pass it on to others, and so that for many generations to come, your name would be known throughout the whole earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.